This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Ten years ago, nobody knew what Zoom was, and online church meant having a Facebook page. No matter how fast tech changes, John Dyer says it still has a place in the story of God. This is Device and Virtue. Hey, welcome back to Device and Virtue, where we argue the wrongs and rights of technology and faith in everyday life. We're coming to you from Chicago. I'm Chris. And I'm Adam. Hey, Chris. Today, we have a longtime Device and Virtue friend on the episode. I'm really excited. Yes. John Dyer has been a friend of our podcast for, well, even before we were a podcast, let's be honest. He was a friend (laughs) and he's come on to talk about his new book or his updated book, From the Garden to the City. The Place of Technology in the Story of God. He published this 11 years ago. He did an 11-year update, and we were like, we haven't had one of our big influences and best friends on the podcast. We got to have him on. We got to talk about this book. And so eight seasons in, we're finally having John on the podcast. I mean, that's amazing. Professor John Dyer, he actually works for Dallas Theological Seminary. He's an assistant professor of theological studies there. He's also the vice president for enrollment services and educational tech there. But we like him because he's been writing on this forever. He's the author of three books, but he's also a coder. And he was a programmer back in the day. And so (laughs) I remember him coding little fun things online. Like he made a Bible that replaced all the you alls (laughs) with y'all. <laughs> right. So English speakers could understand what was happening in the Greek, and that was a fun app. And he called it the y'all version. You've got you version, and now it's the y'all version. And it actually became pretty popular, and it's really valuable, right? Because like, there's the singular you, and there's the group you, and we don't have a distinction between those things in the English language, exactly. unless you live in Texas. And that's where John lives. It is true. He is smart. He is interesting. He got his PhD from Durham, the same place that you did your yeah. studies, yes, and has written so much on this topic. He's really the name in technology and faith that people haven't heard of but they should have. Right. So I hope people enjoy our interview with John Dyer. Well, John Dyer, good to have you with us. Thanks for having me, guys. I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting to have you. We originally met, I don't know if you remember this, and Adam, I'm sorry, man, I've got a fact here. I (laughs) met John before I met Adam. Do you remember when we first met John? I don't even think I do. So tell me the story. Yeah, yeah. I was not sure. I think we met at an exponential conference in Orlando, Florida. That's in like it. Wow. 2010, 2011. Mm. Yeah. Wow. You were doing a workshop on technology and faith. And I was mm-hmm. actually representing a mission organization because I was teaching mm-hmm. pastors how to raise funds for new church plants. And I happened to see the title in the list of workshops. And I'm like, whoa, I've got to leave my booth here and somehow make my way over to there and walked in there, heard you doing a PowerPoint for, I don't know, like 15 people in the corner of a room. 
It was the mm. best presentation I had heard on technology and faith to date. And I had just ran all my seminary research mm. on the topic mm. and I grabbed you afterwards. Do you remember this? And we talked in the hallway yeah. for like 20 minutes. I was like, you sent me dude, your that was really and, good. Yeah. <laughs> it was so encouraging, Chris, because, you know, I had graduated from seminary a couple of years before and was feeling a little bit like I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be doing with my mm. life. And I remember it's like one of those big conferences where there's huge speakers and thousands of people and then 15 yeah, people show up. Yeah, big one. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I remember meeting two people, you, okay. and one okay. other person who said, I haven't heard anybody else this conference use oh. scripture or walk through the Bible. It's just been oh, all wow. ideas. You're the only person that opened up the Bible. And I thought, man. Maybe that whole seminary thing really did form me in some neat ways, and I got to meet you. So that was awesome. You did an amazing job, and I had this galley that you gave me, a galley like meaning that version of a book before it actually makes it out to the public, of your original book, From the Garden to the City. Back then, it was called The Redeeming and Corrupting Power of Technology. I have this pre-print copy, and that is the copy on my shelf of the book we're talking about today. And so it is an That's awesome right. To have you on the podcast. Yeah. And John, I think I met you in 2013. So yes, Chris, you're right. It was later. <laughs> it was also at a conference, but it was even nerdier than Exponential. It was the Bible Tech Conference in Seattle. Yeah. So on the other side of the country, we got a chance to meet. I think you spoke there. I think I was speaking there too. But I knew who John was from his original blog, Don't Eat the Fruit. And that's what it was called. That's what it was called. Yeah. Was it an um, anti-tech podcast? I don't eat it. You would think so, but no, it, was it was an just... anti-Apple podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was trying to play with the don't drink the Kool-Aid thing and then the mm. Apple thing. And then also just sort of these two dominant messages, which were like, use technology totally without thinking or yeah. all technology is bad. Those seem to be the two, you know, you were forced to have one of those two pills. And I was going, right. I think that right. there's a third way as all others want to mm. share it out. Mm. Well, we're so glad that you have been spending the last 10 years and more doing a lot of thinking around faith and technology. Mm -hmm. And so thank you. It's been a huge influence in my own career and my own thinking. We still recommend your book to friends. And this is why we're thrilled that you have a 10-year updated version of this. Yeah. And technically, it's actually an 11-year update, which is a nice binary <laughs> number for yeah. us, you know, one mm -hmm. one. So I wanted to do that on purpose, <laughs> prime number, all that good stuff. Yeah, we want to jump in and talk about the book. John, maybe tell us a little bit about how did you even end up wanting to talk and think about technology and faith? And yeah. how is it that you ended up at Exponential actually opening the Bible and talking about yeah. technology? Yeah. Well, I'll try to tell it going all the way back to my college years. So I had originally thought I wanted to go to, into medicine and be a medical missionary. So I had some sense of ministry in there. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And because I started college when I was 16, I graduated from college a little bit early. Doogie Hauser jokes were funny at that point. So I want to take some time off. Wow. And funny story, I had a patent on a molecule in college. Well, we can talk about that in a different what? time. Oh, anyway, wow. So I, I took a job at a church. I'm working as a middle school youth pastor. And I didn't make enough money. And I had I'd always played with technology as a kid. So I figured I could get a web development job because I had made this church website for hmm. our kids where you could share photos and all that sort of stuff. This is about <laughs> the year 2000. And so I thought, man, I could actually make money on the side. So I started doing that and eventually felt like, you know, going to medical school wasn't the right way. I'd be going to seminary and doing some type of ministry. So I had these two things. I was working in technology and I was studying theology, but they were always hmm. two separate areas. Right. I even got to develop online education technology where I could take professors overseas, where I thought I was going to go overseas as a medical missionary. Now uh -huh. I'm using technology to do this. I'm so excited about the potential. 
And then I have this in a little intro part of the book where I say that I had this professor say, one of the worst things you can do is believe that technology is neutral. And that just Boom. blew my mind. I had always thought technology is just neutral. I want to use it for good and not use it for bad. Huh. So I started trying to read and think, what does this mean? What does this idea mean? And I, like I mentioned earlier, I found these two streams of thought of man, the church is always behind. We have to accelerate. We have to go as fast as we can. We have to use everything that comes out as soon as it comes huh. out. And this other side that's like, everything about this is bad and society right. is going down. And you know, I'm thinking there's got to be something more to that. And so I remember doing a little talk at that Bible tech conference that Faith Life, Logos, Bible Software put on about just the eras of Bible media. Hmm. And eventually this turned into, you know, writing a blog and writing a book and all that sort of stuff and thinking, man, I really want to equip, you know, regular believers to think theologically about technology, but also those who are working in the technology industry to be able to say, these fields don't have to be so separate like they were for me, but they can be pulled together. We can read the biblical story technologically and we can read our technological world with that kind of biblical lens. Hmm. You went on to be a coder. You had a lot of coding skills. In fact, yeah. I remember you made... A lot of web apps, including bestcommentaries.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which is something that I used in seminary, the website that I was like, <laughs> I stumbled upon before I knew who you were and thinking, oh, dang, this is like a database of all Bible commentaries. Yeah. How did you create that? Well, in seminary, you know, I would ask my Greek and Hebrew professors, what's the best commentary in Isaiah? What's the best commentary in Ruth or Mark <laughs> or whatever? And they would give you these lists that they had, or there was a couple books out there that D.A. Carson and others would put together. And I'm using Rotten Tomatoes and I'm thinking <laughs> it should be Rotten Tomatoes for commentaries, right? Of, yeah, of right? An aggregate review system that peels them all the way up. And as a starting point, it can't give you the perfect answer because yeah. you know, commentaries vary widely in what they do. So I put together that site. Now, 10 years later from that site, so I made that site, I think in 2008, and I did an update a couple of years ago. So just speaking of updates, at yeah. the time, I hadn't really thought about algorithmic bias and what's built into that and thinking mm. about well, if a bunch of white male evangelical professors like to put out lists because evangelicals yeah. like to say what's right and what's wrong, how would that affect the algorithm? You know, mm, And right. how would it not necessarily surface people of color, female authors and reviewers and all that kind of stuff? So I started thinking about how could I adjust the algorithms to take that into account in some way. Mm-hmm. And so there's some little things on the website that try to highlight multiple different kinds of authors so that we don't have everybody piling on the same review and kind of repeating one another. The things that we cool. see on social media today, that kind of echo chamber. So it's been a fun experience. That, that's really awesome. interesting. I needed to go check it out again since I have not been in seminary in a while and want to see those updates. <laughs> and we're right, right? Like obviously there are theologians across God's creation. However, the publishing world of theology was definitely mm-hmm. dominated by the white male American European perspective for mm-hmm. a long time. And mm-hmm. I, it's, that's really important. I'm glad you've worked on that. Yeah. Let's dive in and talk more about The Garden of the City. This was your kind of first major book and foray into faith and technology. It came out in 2011. And like you said, you had an 11-year update that came out now in summer of 2022. And looking back as you were updating that book, what in your mind had changed in technology over the course of 11 years? Yeah. Well, if you guys don't mind, can I read you a sentence from the preface to the second edition? Yeah, for sure. So here's the way I tried to put it. I said, in the decades since the first edition of this book was published, our world has continued to accelerate technologically with once futuristic technology becoming mainstream. And then in parenthesis, I say cryptocurrency, virtual reality, smart speakers, self-driving cars, and then mainstream technology becoming commonplace, phones, social media, video conferencing. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is somewhat like Chris's movement of toy and then tool and then background, that some of the things that were out there that were these extreme toys have become these tools that we use every day. So cryptocurrency, Bitcoin yeah. existed when the first edition of this book came out. Right. right. But no one really knew about it. And then some of those things that were kind of more out there as the tools for the tech elite, like phones and social media to some extent, those were still really pocketed in 2010, mm-hmm. that those have just become the background noise of our everyday life. Even video conferencing was something that was out there. Some people had it. Now everybody has it. And today, now we're talking about very specific kinds of AI. So those movements, I think, were some of the ones I wanted to track. So there's a couple areas where I just wanted to beef up things. I wanted to add things to the book or I want to change an example. But then I also yeah. really wanted to play with each of those things and then still keep the core argument true. Do you feel like there's any technology that surprised you in the last decade? I would say one of them that I think has surprised me now is just the perspective of being a parent. So huh. my kids were just being born in that time. And for example, that little zone of 2005 to eight is that zone mm-hmm. where YouTube comes out, Facebook and Twitter become public iPhone comes out, that makes things like version and Bible apps possible. All this stuff is happening right there. Since then, there are things that have come out. There's a little bit bigger of a push toward VR, but it still hasn't really hit. I think the mainstream tech discussion about AI is probably the biggest one that is mm-hmm. really hitting us, even in the academic world with yeah. you know, text generation. I think that's one even in the last month that's really yeah. surprised us, I think. But when I think about my own kids, for example, they've never channel surfed in their entire life. <laughs> but not only do they not channel surf and say watch shows on netflix whatever they're very much more into youtube personalities than they are Mm. into actual shows Mm -hmm. and that kind of social behavior difference is some of the things that i think just as you age you just get surprised by and it's really fun to watch and learn from a next generation just the world that they are born into interesting you made a lot of updates to this book do you feel like your own theology or faith perspective has changed Mm -hmm. over the last decade How do you feel like your own thinking has developed? Obviously, you went back and got a PhD thinking about a lot of this stuff, and that's going to hugely influence it. But any like broad trends in your Mm -hmm. mind that you've noticed? Yeah. When I teach a class on theology, technology, digital culture, I do introduce them to media ecology, which I'd read a lot out, and somewhat the philosophy of technology. I just hadn't spent as much time on the sociology, religion, digital religion area We're actually taking data about how people operate Mm -hmm. and trying to theorize about that. I hadn't had as much of that. So I try to sprinkle that in a little bit more so that there isn't just theology and media ecology, but that we're taking this other perspective in there. I think that's deep. And I think there wasn't as much in there really surfacing some of the places in scripture where there are ethical guidelines about creation and the use of tools and how they can affect masses of people. So I hadn't really put that in. So I've tried to sprinkle in a few things there. I think one of the areas that I spent a lot of time on too was if the overall argument is something in this idea that human making is such a deep part of the story and we're hooking technology up under that. Right. There wasn't as much work on differentiating between older tools and newer devices to use Borgman's terminology or taking Andy Crouch's instrument idea and Mm -hmm. making some separation. So I spent a little bit more time on some of those distinctions about trying to make that shift from we've looked at the biblical story. Now let's look at some important distinctions in this current here. Yeah. No, it's been a really great book as that first text for a lot of Christians who haven't thought about technology at all and are lost in the sea of technology and are trying to figure out how do I even stay afloat here? And your book has really done a good job at giving people 
some floaties at least, an inner tube, <laughs> a boat, maybe some oars to row and mm. to really figure out how do we surf this wave to mix my metaphors a little bit. Sure. And both Chris and I have been hugely influenced by your work. And one of the things that we both agree on is that we love one, your definition of technology mm. and two, your claim, like you were saying, your professor blew your mind with was that technology wasn't neutral. And so I'd love for you just to give us what's your definition of technology and then your sort of best argument for why technology is not neutral. Yeah, what I enjoy doing sometimes with an audience of people, even here at a seminary context or a church setting, is I'll put up a slide that says, do you think technology is good, bad, or neutral? And what I find almost every time if I do a live poll or I just have people raise their hands or whatever, Mm. is generally about 5% will say good, 5% will say bad, and 90% will say neutral. And I'm like, yeah, that just makes so much sense, right? To say that technology isn't, it's not a moral character. It doesn't have a soul or it doesn't need to be saved. That's kind of what we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. And so I say, hey, this is a mistake for a speaker usually is to set you up to say 90% of you guys are wrong. (laughs) But I'll say my goal is to have you come out of this with two ideas that you're holding together. Is that theologically speaking, that technology is good. It's part of those things that God declares as good in Genesis 1. Mm. But that practically speaking, it's never neutral and that it has an embedded value system that transforms individuals and communities. So that's really what I'm trying to get you to see is this idea that, man, if we look at the biblical story, man, human making is part of what it means to be human. So that when we think about just body and soul over here, that we really are much more than that. We are deeply connected to other humans, to other creatures and to creation itself through what we make. But then at the same time to say, well, anything we use is always shaping us at the same time. Mm -hmm. And so the classic example that I start with to be safe is the shovel idea where we dig a hole and we change the world. But at the same time, and I, I raise my hands, you know, in front of an audience, I say, what happens to me? And then it all kind of clicks that something happens to my hands when I do that, that they get blisters and calluses. And that can be perceived as a negative, right? Of, right. of it hurts. Right. Or it could be perceived as a positive that, wow, I'm developing this, this callus that looks cool, right? <laughs> or muscles or something or knowledge of the soil that I yeah. am changed in that process. And once I unlock that, physical example, then we say, well, what else is happening today Mm -hmm. with all the digital tools? And so that's really what I'm trying to get at is hold those two things. I don't really want to say intention, Mm -hmm. but to be able to say that the nature of technology really is good. I think that affirms creators and makers and tech workers and younger people who are constantly getting criticized. But then it also kind of has that one-two punch of saying, and we really ought to be more attentive to the ways that these things can shape us. By the way, the shovel analogy has been one of my favorites to copy from you. (laughs) Even though there are other ones, it's just so simple and it's so well done. And that's what I remember you doing, I think, back in 2011 as well. And so it really helps set the stage for the fact that it affects the user. That frame of not only we use technology, but technology also shapes us, really does permeate your book in a lot of ways, Mm. John. And it not only shapes us as individuals using a shovel, but also shapes our cultures and our societies Mm. on this larger macroscopic level. And one of the things that you talk about later in the book is the virtualization of mm-hmm. culture. Yeah. And you talk about how culture is becoming more virtual. And you write a quote from the book. You say, when people don't have firm anchors in the world, they will often respond by creating patterns of life that may not be healthy. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you can unpack that a little bit and talk a little bit about how is 
technology virtualizing our culture? And how is it setting us adrift as a result? Yeah, and I think with all these things, you know, we don't want to paint it as all good or all bad, but just to recognize this change is happening. And one of the things I did is I wanted to take, to get at this idea of virtualization, to take a biblical example and then a contemporary example. So the biblical example is the Exodus story and what's happening in there when the people of Israel are waiting for Moses up on the mountain. And Mm -hmm. then to map that to what happened in the pandemic of 2020. Mm -hmm. And so what I'm doing here is I'm saying, okay, when the Israelites are in Egypt, it's one way of life. And they go out into the desert, so they're displaced. Right. And they're trying to figure out how does life work. And mm-hmm. Moses is up on the mountain, and he's getting all these laws from God. Right. But he's also getting this whole blueprint for a way of life. So he's okay. getting instructions on the temple, all mm-hmm. these physical smells, touches, all of that. And this really wonderful passage where the very first time the Spirit of God is going to descend on somebody, it's Bezalel, the maker guy. Right, because yeah. he's going to take all these abstract theological principles and ideas and make them something you can taste, touch, smell, and see, and that yeah. that will order their lives. Mm-hmm. But while they're out there in the desert, they don't have any of that. So they really mm-hmm. don't have a way of life that makes sense to them. And mm-hmm. so what is their reaction? Right after you see this idea of Bezalel, what they do before Moses comes down is they melt all their gold and they make a golden calf. Mm-hmm. And we know that idols are bad and that we should not have them, right? That's a very simple <laughs> biblical principle. We should worship God and not idols. But I think what's really happening here is it's not just about worshiping an alternate God. It's about having something that orders our life. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really what that was doing for them as it was giving them something that made sense, something right. to center everything around. Mm-hmm. And so I think in the pandemic, you see a similar thing where everybody has a way of life. Something comes in and it changes all of that. And then we all start doing different habits. So we play Wordle and we make sourdough (laughs) starters and all that stuff that we did for a little while. They're all trying to make sense of our lives and go, what really matters? Yeah. And so I think what this surfaces is how much the things around us do shape our daily lives. So if we Mm -hmm. think about, do I wake up to a phone every morning? Because that's the super convenient alarm, but then I a bunch of stuff that I kind of don't want to check. I mean, I do, but I don't. Right, 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 right. And maybe I don't exercise or pray or whatever it is that I think I want to do. I gravitate toward what this device allows me. And I've chosen to structure my life that way by having that thing around which I orbit. Right. So that's what I'm getting at by saying, maybe even by saying a clock that goes off in the morning, that's all it does. Right. When I virtualize that physical object and I put it into my phone, Mm. then that habit of waking up to something and immediately doing the thing that I want to do, I now am associated with my phone. Yeah. And that that's not inherently bad. It's just a new behavior that I need to be aware of. Right. So that's kind of what I mean is that if we then say, instead of going to the bar to meet significant others, potential significant others, (laughs) I do that on an app, that's a virtualization of a particular behavior. Or, um, you know, I used to pass a basket in church and I would, you know, put physical money in it. And that that has a thing where maybe I'm trying to be seen or maybe we as a community are seeing each other or maybe my children are seeing me put money in or maybe my community is all those things are now virtualized by online giving, which has huge benefits for churches in the summer and all kinds of things like that. But right. it, does, it does take a physical activity and it collapses it down to something that you can't touch or see. This is adjacent to Borgman's concept of a device, right? Where mm. there's an, an object and then, a, and then a device. But I think as we virtualize those things, sometimes we lose anchors and we can feel a little bit unstable. Mm-hmm. Now, some activities like what we're doing right now, recording across the country, you know, fantastic. And it really reduces resources. But at the same time, if this is all I ever did, that might right. not be the most healthy form of life for me. Yeah, that's really helpful 
just to recognize, like you're saying, it's not about making a moral judgment necessarily, but recognizing that there are habits that are changing as we change the objects that we're interacting with. If I'm interacting with a clock versus my phone, that's going to change my habits. And then recognizing that that creates new opportunities and new risks around what can I do with this versus what can't I do? And that takes us in new directions, both individually, but also collectively as cultures. And that's like you're saying, what happened with the pandemic. Another phrase that really struck me from your book that I don't think was in the first edition, but you use the phrase, technology is for the table. Mm. And I'd love for you to sort of unpack some of your thinking around what that phrase means. Technology is for the table. Yeah, so I'm thinking about a table as both a reality, a physical thing, and also a metaphor. And I'm thinking about the actual physical table and then also the concept of table, meaning communion and what we do as as Christians and uh, the formal practice of Eucharist and then maybe also just the koinonia community that we have. So all those things are tying up into one thing. Okay. So the physical object of a table could be thought of as a tool or a technology. And one of the things that it's Mm -hmm. really good at doing is getting people to face each other, unlike, say, a theater or something like that, where we're all facing some screen or person or audience or something like that. But with the table, we're all facing each other and that causes or it enables or makes possible certain behaviors that would be rich interaction. Yeah. So I'm thinking about that and that that's part of what we're doing when we come to the Eucharist. We are facing one another and facing the reality of our sin and also our redemption. And we're also using the technologically derived things of grapes that have been converted into grape juice or wine, depending on your persuasion, (laughs) or crackers or bread or whatever that is. Right. That object of making that came before is the thing that we're centering around. Hmm. But when I say technology for the table, so I'm thinking of all that human relationality and saying, how do we employ or deploy the tools that we have in service of that thing? Hmm. And sometimes it will be a, a replacement for, but I think that even this conversation you and I are having right now, this is enriching the next time we get to actually be at the table together. And so I think I see this and then the emails that we had before to establish the time to meet, <laughs> right. all of those are technology for the table in right. my mind. So I'm thinking, how do I order these and how do I think about social media, not just as a self-promotion, but say as a way of keeping track of what's going on in someone's life so that when I'm at the table, I can then ask them about those things and I can know something more about mm. their life. Mm. You might say technologies are an extension of the table. Yeah, I think it can extend and enhance and enrich all of those things. Well, I'm using that word, that Marshall McLuhan's extension thing. It's not exactly the same way he's using it, but in a church that I was part of for years, we often talked about the table or the Eucharist table, communion being an extension of our other tables, or maybe that reverses as well, like our dinner table was an extension of mm-hmm. the Eucharist table. And we would actually physically act it out. So we had a table that would be in the middle of the room at church. It was a church in the round. So people would sit in some concentric circles. And instead of having a square table up in front of an audience, we had a round table in the middle and we would do communion together. And then we'd take down all the chairs after the service and set up folding tables that jutted out from that center table in four directions. And then everyone would set out their potluck on that and we'd all sit down and eat. (laughs) And very physical, obvious, but beautiful representation of this fellowship that we're having in the place being extension of the Eucharist. And and I love that. I think that's a great example that you're giving of tables that they do have inherent values to them and a usage, but depending on how we arrange them, our identity gets reshaped both individually Mm. and as a community. So if we face all the chairs forward, then we are listeners to a speaker. But if we put them in a round, all of a sudden we are a group and we are sharing and the expectations change. 
So I think that tells us something that every technology has something embedded in it, and yet we can rearrange it for different kinds of purposes. Yeah, I really appreciate that idea that the table is at the center and our technology is best oriented when we are using it to drive us into that sort of table-oriented relationship, whether in-person, face-to-face, but very present-oriented, very real-time oriented, and that we can use all these other technologies that tend to want to replace it, but we can also reorient those technologies so that we're driving towards real connection that is satisfying and fulfilling for our spiritual lives as much as anything else. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive, Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us, written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter. Grieve, breathe, receive. Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing, the kind that comes after painful trauma. Grieve, breathe, receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more. John, one of the interesting additions to the book was you do a really great job of surveying this contrast between tools and devices. We talked about this earlier this season with Andy Crouch, but you did a really interesting thing towards the end of The Garden of the City where you unpack and draw some distinctions between tools and devices. So for example, you talk about tools tend to engage us physically, but devices tend to be more mental or spiritual in orientation. Mm -hmm. But you talk about some others, and I'd love for you to help us understand a couple of these. So for example, you say when we're moving from tools to devices, we're moving from something that's like self-contained to dependent. Can you mm-hmm. explain that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, if I'm thinking of a hammer as being a tool that once I bought that, it just works and it's self-contained. It doesn't need anything else to operate. Whereas I would say a device like a phone you know, needs an internet connection or else the maps won't work or needs mm-hmm. some other connections or power or something like that to use. So just, yeah, a simple distinction like that can help us see something that we purchase that, again, once we bought it, it's done. And then, then maybe another way to say it would be single purchase versus subscription model, <laughs> that devices would be subscription model and tools would be single purchase. Oh, man, that's why I love DVDs. Because I don't have to have a streaming service that I'm constantly paying for. And I know I get teased for that, but it is. It's something that I can feel like I'm less dependent on other things in the process. Another way you frame it is it moves us from things that are inert to things that are persuasive. Yeah. Again, I don't think the hammer ever tries to get us to hammer more nails. You know, we have to take that initiative on our own. Whereas most of our devices are constantly reminding us to use them in some way. Mm-hmm. Hmm. trying to urge us in that way. I think that's particularly post-smartphone. So there's other kinds of devices that maybe don't do that, but smartphone onward, we see that a lot. I was using a shaver this morning and I was thinking, is this a device or is this a tool? Obviously it's electric, but it felt very much more like it's not trying to encourage me to shave more or anything like that. No one's benefiting from me spending more time with my shaver. Yeah, that's a good question. Just because it's electric and it's a little bit more efficient, does that make it a device? And I would say that fits over in the tool because it really doesn't map to many of these categories there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And another way that you frame it is you talk about it moves us from presence to connection. Can you explain that? 
Yeah, I give the example in there of the difference between sending a physical thing that represents you in some way like a letter versus being online where we are live together. And that distinction where I'm sending some physical representation of myself, it's not my own presence, but there's either me being present or some representation of me being present to where now we are alive and connected. And I think both of those things are really important things for us to do. And even when we look back in first John or second, third John, you know, where he makes that little statement about face-to-face and writing. Yeah. And they're both incredibly important things and you just need to know when to do which one. Well, now we have this other thing, which is to be connected with one another online. And that's mm-hmm. something that I think modern devices allow that we just never had before. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, that survey that you do between tools and devices is really, I think, a huge value add to this updated edition of the book. In addition to a lot of other things, I think even the subtitle of the book has changed and now it's the place of technology in the story of God. And you even spend more time making the scripture portions more robust and helping us see the technology as part of what God is doing in the world. And Mm -hmm. for that reason alone, I think that the new edition is worth getting again and rereading because it's so valuable. Yeah. Well, thanks for saying that. I had a lot of fun doing that and, you know, adding questions to the end of things and just trying to say, how do I make this more interactive and helping more people think about these things would be fun. Absolutely. One final thing, John, around your book and another edition that you had was you get into more of the ethics of design and building of technology. And I'm curious if you could unpack that a little bit more to help people understand where you're coming from and what your thoughts are there. Yeah. Well, as I was writing this update, I was actually doing a yearly Bible reading plan, which I hadn't done in a long time. And as I went along through this, I just came across a couple of places that I hadn't seen before where it seems like the scriptures mention things about creating and some of our ethical imperatives. Mm. So Mm. one of them that I think I've even heard you guys mention before is this little passage in Deuteronomy where it says, when you build a new house, make a parapet, which is a little guardrail on the top, along the roof, so that you do not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house. (laughs) And so it's like, man, it it seems like the scripture is saying, make stuff. But when you do, be thinking about how this will affect people down the line. And then the one that I just kept seeing over and over and over again is this passage about use honest scales and honest weights and an honest hen. I'm the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. And it just repeats this thing. And I think what was so significant about this is this appears in the Pentateuch and the law, all throughout the prophets. It's in all the wisdom literature. It just happens over and over and over again. And I think it's really getting at the kind of scale that we're at today, where an individual way you could cheat somebody or you could stab somebody with a knife, with a scale, you could cheat a whole city. And so you can scale your scale as it were. And so I think this is really talking about today that some of the issues that we discuss about systemic issues with technology, Mm -hmm. these are important to the scriptures. And so a little bit before we met, I went on chat GPT and asked about, I said, what is the role of technology in the biblical story? And it says in the Bible, technology plays a relatively minor role. The Bible does not focus on technology, rather on the relationship between God and his people. I thought, you know, I don't think chat is right. I don't think OpenAI is right in that case. (laughs) I think it really is giving us some some tools there to be thinking about our tools in a way that maximizes human flourishing. And so I'm I'm glad to be able to surface a little bit of that and just give some footnotes pointing you to some other resources. You heard it here first. John is taking chat GPT to task and <laughs> and claiming that it is wrong and it needs to be corrected. And books like yours are hopefully making it into chat GPT to correct its faulty scales, if you will. Yes, it only knows up to 2021 and this book came out <laughs> in 2022. And so hopefully it will read it soon. <laughs> exactly, exactly. 
Michael John at the end of every episode, Adam and I usually do a segment called Vice or Virtue, where we break down and make a snap judgment about some sort of technology, (laughs) decide whether it's a vice or virtue. Instead of that, today, we'd like to do a special version of this called... Settle this argument between Adam and Chris. (laughs) Okay. You're going to be the judge. (laughs) And we're bringing in an oldie, but a goodie. You address this in your book, From the Garden to the City, Mm -hmm. but it's a topic that we've worked on for a long time. We actually have an episode entitled this, and we called the episode, Is Technology Making History or Is History Making Technology? Nice. And what we mean by that is, is technology a leading force in history that maybe we can't get away from? Technology controls us. This is called determinism in some camps, right? Mm -hmm. A technological determinism. And you know these terms. Or do people really actually have a lot of control over the choices that they're making and the way technology gets shaped and affects things? And on one side, that's called instrumentalism. So I figure the way we can do this is I'm going to give you my one-minute pitch, and then Adam's going to give you his one-minute pitch. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. (laughs) Is that okay? Is that okay, Your Honor? (laughs) Love it. I'll go first because I brought it up, and I'll let Adam figure out what he's going to say. Thank you. I'm going to argue on the determinist side. I would say I'm a soft determinist around technology, meaning that I think technology plays a leading role in the course of human events, and that often the effect of technologies goes way beyond what anyone could imagine or have controlled, including the inventor of the technology. And so, you know, there are all sorts of classic examples around this. I think you mentioned in your book, Marx famously writes about the windmill. And he says the windmill ended feudalism uh, (laughs) because, right, because it changes the economics of the situation and these kinds of things. Elizabeth Eisenstein, who's a famous professor that wrote on the role of the printing press, winds up making a case that the printing press caused both the Protestant Reformation and the Enlightenment, that Mm. Luther would not have nailed his theses up to the door of Wittenberg. And it spread really quickly and maybe changed the course of history with the Pope Mm. and everything, right? Mm. There are a lot of examples. There are little weird things. Like we did an episode on an escapement. I don't know if you've heard of what that is. It's a piece and a clock that started showing up in the Middle Ages in the 1280s, but it made a clock tick regularly, tick, 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 tick. Mm. And that changed the way all of time and trade happened in the world eventually. Right? So these, oh, man, that was a deep cut. Thanks. These are big technologies that I think have affected the world in ways that no individual, no matter what they did, could really make a big difference in. And so I think technology has had a leading role in changing history. That's my argument. All right. That's a formidable argument. I'm also going to appeal to history. You say you're a soft determinist, so I'm just going to be a hard instrumentalist in this case. <laughs> and I'm going to appeal to the story of Japan and guns in the 17th century. So in the 1600s, Japan is one of the more advanced gun-making societies And so they're developing guns at the forefront of technology, right? But in Japan, they have this warrior value, this warrior class, the samurai class, and they have this value called Bushido. I think I'm pronouncing that right, Bushido. And it's this honor-based system, and they value skill, and they value expertise. And when you use your swords, you have these skills against your opponent, And with a gun, it doesn't require any skill and you have no honor. And so this high ranking class in Japanese society is like 
no, guns are for the lower classes. We refuse to use them. And over time, the government eventually curtails production of gun making and eventually gun makers disappear from Japanese society. Right. And so I look at that and I say, man, absolutely cultures and individuals have influence over the direction that technology and history take. And besides that, these devices, these tools, they have no agency on their own. We have to use them for them to have any sort of effect. And so I will conclude with Chris's favorite commentator, Marshall McLuhan, who says, there is absolutely no inevitability as long as there is a willingness to contemplate what is happening. <laughs> and I believe that as a hard instrumentalist, history and culture and people are driving technology, not the other way around. John, please hmm. help us resolve this tension. Great examples from both of you. You know, I often will show a slide with this line across the middle going left to right with instrumentalism and determinism on one side and then up and down being positive or negative view. And you put people in each categorization to see where are you leaning, you know? Uh -huh. And I honestly feel like on a given day, I'll lean either way. Now, as uh -huh. a speaker, I'll always tell people my goal is to be the center view that holds all things together, right? That's oh, my goal. And so here I can say all the examples you gave are true. <laughs> and that, yes, I think that technology does play a leading role in the movement of society. And yet we as individuals and sometimes as communities have choices in the way that we're going to operate. So I think the European reaction to the car is a little bit different than the American reaction to the car. Right. And the mm -hmm. set of circumstances does shape things to some extent that it's not just any one technology can't just totally override. But I do think we're entering into an era where it is a little bit harder for an individual or a society to push back against. And yet, even in the pandemic, we saw different countries with different responses to masks and vaccines and right. different cultural mm. values being expressed in the East and the West and all that. Mm. Mm. So I do think that technology does have a very strong shaping power in society. And yet again, we as individuals have choices about how we're going to do. And sometimes we can make those choices in the community. And I do think that's the whole point is that we right. as Christians would be aware of those things. And that both for our Christian community and for the city that we're called to benefit and flourish, that we would be helping shape those decisions in ways that would maximize human flourishing. What do you think about that? I think it's obvious that I won that, Adam, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> it's not obvious at all. <laughs> I am the beholder, man. <laughs> we'll let the audience decide. I think that was a big group hug for us all. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, John, thanks for the judgment. You did a very good job of pointing out how both of these can be right in different circumstances. Yeah. But we love your analysis. We've been talking about one book. You have another book that is also just come out recently called People of the Screen, how evangelicals have worked with Bible apps and created digital Bibles. We'd like to have you back on another time to talk about that. Would you come back? Oh, I would love to do that. That'd be great. Yeah, that'd be awesome. We're going to figure that out for now. The book that people really should be picking up is the 11-year anniversary edition of From the Garden to the City, The Place of Technology and the Story of God by John Dyer. And look for The Place of Technology and the Story of God as the subtitle. I think that changed from the original edition. Is that mm -hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. And the original cover is white and we went dark mode for the new one. <laughs> it's dark cool. mode for the new one. Awesome. Published by Kriegel. John, thanks so much for being on with us, for your judgments, your wisdom, <laughs> and your friendship. Well, it's an honor to be on the Best Name podcast on the entire internet. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. This is why we have them on. It's a little sound bites. Because we get a little pat on the back for this. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> 
This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's MA in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu/hdl.